honestly, we are prone to blame our anger on other people, on other situations. Tempted to say that we are angry because of our Italian blood. That guy is Japanese and he's saying that's the Italian blood or the Irish blood. It's my Irish blood. And you see so many Christians who are bullies and violent with their words, especially social media and the internet. They're always, always leaving nasty comments, always ready to bark and get into social media theological fights. God saved you not just to escape His wrath and hell. Amen? Otherwise, He'll just save you and take you to heaven. He saved you. He redeemed you, according to Romans chapter 8, to make you more and more like whom? Christ Jesus. And that's the process of sanctification. Would you please open your Bibles to Titus? Titus chapter 1. I want to invite you to stand if you can. Let us read verses 5 through 9. Here's the word of the Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I commanded you. If anyone is above reproach or blameless, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You may be seated and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. May the Holy Spirit help me and help you. We are needy indeed. What should you expect from your pastors? What should your pastors be like? If you had the power to create the ideal elder, pastor, how would your imaginary pastor look like? And after researching, asking people, here's what the, past, the perfect pastor would look like. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. He condemns sin but never steps on anybody's toes. He's at his office early in the morning, starting at 6 a.m., and works until midnight, doing everything from preaching sermons to sweeping. The perfect pastor makes $500 per month, gives $400 month to the church. He drives a nice car, not too nice, but a nice car, wears fine clothes, works outside the church, and has a perfect family. He always stands ready to contribute to every other good cause and to help panhandlers who drop by the church on their way to somewhere. He's in his 30s, but he has been preaching for more than 40 years. <laughs> He's tall on the short side, heavy set, in a thin sort of way, and handsome. He has eyes of blue or brown to fit the occasion, and where his hair parted in the middle, Left side dark and straight, right side brown and wavy. He has a burning desire to work with the youth and he spends all his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor that finds him seriously dedicated. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. And we might laugh at such a description, but the truth is that we are all prone to create our own ideal minister, church. We are prone to create our own ideal family. And, and Titus 1 will help us to see what Christ 
what Jesus Christ, the true and great shepherd of the church, what he wants from the man leading his bride. And that's what matters the most. Not what you and I want, but what he wants. And that's what Titus 1 gives us. Partially, because we need the whole scope of scriptures, but it gives us a wonderful foundation what you expect from those who are going to be pastoring the flock of Christ. And as we come to Titus chapter 1, you remember starting verse 5, Paul tells us why Titus is in Crete, in that Greek island, island, and he's there in the Greek island because the churches are lacking order. And Paul left Titus there to put the churches in order. And you see how church order is important. But not order for order's sake. So Paul needs to describe the type of men who are going to be putting the churches in order. And the type of men who will put the church in order are orderly men. Men who have their lives in order. They have three main areas of their lives in order. The home the heart, and the church in the area of doctrine. We can see by looking at verses 6 through 9 that we have a a list of qualifications here for those who are going to be leading the church. And we saw that this list is not exhaustive, meaning it's not everything there. We need the whole scope of scriptures. But it's a very foundational list. If things are missing in the life of a man that are in this list, he cannot be in leadership. You cannot put men who have minus one or minus two of the qualifications. Because that will affect the church. That will affect the church. A pastor must show integrity, wholeness in all areas of his life. I like Walter Liffield says, writing in his commentary, he says, not, not only should the church be looking for people who are qualified, but those with potential should be developing within themselves the qualities that will one day qualify them for the work. I love what he says here. He says, it's not enough for a church to hunt at the last moment for people to elect as elders at an annual meeting. It's a long-term, ongoing process. Why? Because it's a long-term to develop character. It's an ongoing process to test and verify the character of a man. And I want to remind you all, because it's easy for us to start looking at this portion of scriptures, or you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you say, oh, that's just for pastors, that's just for leaders. Or you might be, you know that this is profitable for you, but sometimes it's tempting to start looking at this portion of scripture and say, I wish so-and-so was here to listen to this sermon. How many times have you done that? Be honest. You listen to a sermon and say, may I wish that so-and-so would listen to you. I wish that she was here. Do you know what? God is sovereign and he placed you here this morning because you need to listen. There's something here for you that the Lord wants to comfort, challenge, confront, and make you grow in his holiness. Amen? So this sermon here is not just a weapon like people like to do, get this type of sermons to use against the pastors, the leaders. But it's also a sermon and a text of scriptures where it's very profitable for your soul. Because what he requires from the leaders, pretty much, pretty much, he's requiring for all Christians. Amen? So, the outline of this morning, we are going to continue what we started a few weeks ago, but we are going to go straight to part to number three, and that is a blameless conduct. The pastor and his character are a blameless character. Uh, We're going to be looking at, we look at the conditions, then we look at the blameless home, and now we're going to be looking at the heart of the pastor, the elder. So look with me to verses seven through eight. And you can see here how Paul organizes this list 
And he organizes by having things that we must put to death and things that we must cultivate. Can you see? Not, 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 but be like this. That's very important. Uh, as you are dividing there, you could divide in six and six or five and six because the word blameless is actually it starts with a, ne- a, a prefix that's a negative meaning no blame, no blemish, no spa in his character. And then he moves to six virtues, hospitable, lover of good, self-control, righteous, holy, discipline. And the structure shows us that this is not a checklist uh, of do nots. And it's tempting for us in our Christian life to compare ourselves with people who are worse than us. People who are worse than us. And we say, oh, I'm not like that. Oh, I'm not like that. I'm not like this. But that's not the Christian life. And what Paul is showing us is that, yes, there is a list of vices, blemishes that we must put to death. But it doesn't stop there. We must be cultivating a life of holiness and godliness and beauty. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Christian is empowered not only to put to death those nasty things, but to cultivate these beautiful virtues. Think about that. God saved you not just to escape His wrath and hell. Amen? Otherwise, He would just save you and take you to heaven. He saved you. He redeemed you, according to Romans chapter 8, to make you more and more like whom? Christ Jesus. And that's the process of sanctification. And that's what we see here. And sanctification requires the putting to death, the putting off of the old nasty things that remains from our father Adam, and to put on the new things, the new clothing that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen? So, look at verse 7. He says, For an overseer, as God's steward, and I have here, as God's steward, must be blameless or above reproach. So here's the reason why the elder, the pastor, the overseer must be blameless. Because he's God's servant. He's God's steward. He's representing God. He is the one who comes on behalf of the holy and beautiful God. And the man representing him must walk like he does. And you see that Paul starts now the the list by saying that the elder, the overseer, must be blameless, above reproach. And just remember that above reproach does not mean what? Perfect, sinless. I like what Robert Yarbrough, he says. He says, Paul did not affirm sinless perfection. And think about being above reproach. Even Christ was reproached was evil accusations against him. What Paul means, Paul means that the person should be a stellar character, should be of stellar character and free of obvious or provable black marks against his character. That's what blameless or above reproach is. And you remember that in one way, every single Christian is a steward of God and called to be blameless. So let's see the list here, how... Paul starts developing what it means to be blameless because the elder is God's steward. He must be blameless. And one aspect that makes the pastor, the elder overseer, blameless is the lack of pride in his life. So the ESV says he must not be what? Arrogant. And you see that pride heads the list. Isn't that interesting? That pride is the first in the list. Think about pride will affect all the other ones. Why do you get angry? Because your way, your kingdom, your desire wasn't fulfilled. So all the other ones are following arrogance, pride. We can say pride is the mother of all sins. 
Michael Riccardi, he says, Pride is the most malignant of spiritual tumors, like a cancer, which, if left untreated, will expand, metastasize, and will permeate our spiritual circulatory system until no part is left untouched by its corruption. It's like a cancer. If you don't remove, all of your life will be infected, contaminated with pride and arrogance. So you can see that's not enough for a man to aspire, to be a man, to aspire, to have his home in orderly. Because there are many arrogant men who have their home in order. Why? Because it looks good on them. He needs to be humble. He needs to be clothed with humility, Christ-like humility. The word that Paul uses here, althadis, refers to one, to the one who is only interested in pleasing himself. This term identifies one who is only concerned about his own rights and could care less about others. One Greek dictionary says, Althadis speaks of one who is obstinate in one's opinion, arrogant, refusing to listen to others. It's the man who obstinately maintains his own opinion or asserts his own rights and is reckless of the rights, feelings, and interests of others. Some of the English versions you have self-willed, right? He cannot be self-willed. Why? Because the will of this person is wrapped up in himself. All that he desires, all that he longs is always related to his own self. That's why he's self-willed. Gerald Bray, he says, A man, a man who puts himself first and demands that others treat him as if he is more important than anyone else, has made an idol of himself and is unfit to serve God. The essence of being a Christian is to die to self. And a Christian leader must demonstrate that quality even more than ordinary believers. The prideful man, even when he thinks about others, he thinks about himself and how he will benefit from others. A prideful man is intolerable. You cannot work in a group of pastors and elders with an arrogant person. Because he will always want his way. Like Diotrephes in 3 John 9, he always puts himself above and in front of others. And how many of us have experienced prideful, arrogant men in leadership destroying churches? Not only leaders, but prideful, arrogant members destroying churches. You think about the opposite of the filthy garment of pride is the attractive, the sweet garment of humility. And every Christian is commanded to walk in humility. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. We read earlier, Colossians 3.12, Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, and the garment that he commands is humility, meekness, patience. A man who puts himself above others, who is more concerned with his desires and care more about his personal interest than the interest of others, cannot even be close, near the leadership of a church. So much damage, harm that causes. The man who aspires to be a pastor, an overseer, an elder, he can be a reliable servant, a skillful administrator, have his home in order, be an outstanding theologian, but pride will destroy the man and those around him. Because all he's doing is will in the end be for self-gratification. James chapter 4 says that God opposes what? The proud. Be far from you to be in a church where your pastors and leaders are in opposition with God. You don't want to be in a church where the leaders of the church are in opposition with God because of their pride and arrogance. 
for all of us who hate pride and cry out to the Lord to deliver us from arrogance, we must praise Him for afflictions. It's the afflictions that the Lord sends to our way that He uses to deliver us from pride and arrogance. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that one of the ways that the Lord used to keep him humble was by bringing a thorn into his flesh, suffering, persecution. Sometimes we sing this wonderful hymn from John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow. And it says, the Lord is replying to John Newton, he says, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Praise the Lord for the afflictions that he sends our ways to deliver us from this monster called arrogance, pride. Amen. And we ought, we ought to be so captivated by the grace and the mercy of God. Once the grace and the mercy of God have captivated us, we know that we cannot stand in His presence with any pride or before anybody else. So that's the first one that heads the, the list. Then he moves to anger, not angry. Quick-tempered. Also, it's connected to pride. In James chapter 4, James says, Why are there so many quarrels and fights among you? And then he explains why. Because you desire, you covet, and you have not. Meaning you're arrogant. You're full of yourself. And all that you want, and then you don't get what you want, you get angry, and you quarrel, and you fight. Depending on the version, King James has not soon angry, or the Christian Standard Bible has not hot-tempered. Ergolos, the Greek word, refers to one who is inclined to wrath and anger. He's quick to get angry when he does not get what he wants. Gerald Bray, he says, the word derives from orge and can be understood as someone who gets angry easily. A person who is constantly Irritated can do, or angry can do nothing but alienate others who are bound to become the objects of his wrath, whether they deserve to be or not. Isn't that true? You're around angry people and you just never know when the bomb is going to explode and the anger will be lashed at you for no reason. What is the opposite of a quick-tempered or anger person? Angry person. Gentle, patient. Kind. The Lord God is slow to anger. And we all must imitate Him, especially the leaders in the church. is slow, slow to anger. Anger is infectious, right? You walk with an angry person and suddenly you start getting angry too. And we are prone, honestly, we are prone to blame our anger on other people, on other situations. Uh, we're tempted to say that we are angry because of our Italian blood. <laughs> that guy is Japanese, and he's saying that's the Italian blood, or the Irish blood. It's my Irish blood. Look at what Proverbs says, Proverbs 29:11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit. But a wise man quietly holds it back. A man who is quick to be angry shows himself to be what? A fool. A fool. And you cannot have fools in the leadership of the church. Amen? An angry man can manifest his anger in many different ways. And an angry pastor will create an angry church. Angry pulpit leads to angry pews. I have seen that. Churches where the pastors are always angry. We expect what from the flock. Ben Merkel says, An elder must be able to deal with difficult and emotionally charged situations that arise in his personal life and in the context of the church. 
That's why he cannot be prone to anger. Quick to get angry if he doesn't get his ways. Every Christian is called to be slow to get angry. The church needs shepherds after his own heart. And the Lord is slow to anger. Amen? Another one, not a drunkard. It says, for an overseer, God's steward must be above reproach, blameless. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard. And God prohibits everyone to be a drunkard. Amen? Turn with me to chapter 2. And he says, verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to uh, too much wine. Every Christian is commanded to be free from the lordship of wine, alcohol, or any other idol. We could change here from uh, being a drunkard, because drunkenness, we always think about Oh, just alcohol. But I don't have a problem with alcohol. But that's any idol that controls your life. Any idol that's controlling you. We use the word addiction. He's addicted. No, he's enslaved. That's the biblical word. We use the nice word addiction. The biblical word is idolatrous. There is an idol taking care of that person. And the leader, the, the man in leadership in the church, he must be an example that he's not controlled by any vice or idol. Idols affect our discernment. This man must be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And there is a trend among Christians, especially re- Reformed Christians. That's pathetic. Seeing pastors p- posting pictures of themselves drinking beer and wine with a cigar as if that's cool. To show their freedom and liberty. How pathetic it is that you need to post yourself with glass of wine and beer, how much you're drinking. Pastors should be an example to the church of a man who is controlled by the Spirit of Christ. Think about any person under the influence of something is dangerous, right? How much more people in leadership? Some of us have had parents, fathers or mothers who were alcoholics. And we know the damage that they created in the home. Or they were addicted to other drugs. And you know the damage. Why? Because that affects how one person thinks about others. Let us move. Next one. Not violent. Not a bully, depending on the translation that you have. The... The Christian Standard Bible, the NASB, has not a bully. The word here, the Greek word, describes ruffians who engage in physical violence. But the term may extend also to ideas of anger and violence and verbal abuse. Think about a bully. A bully is a person who habitually is cruel to others who are weaker, right? That's what a bully is. It refers to a man who pushes his way either through man-made force or intimidation to get what he wants. Intimidates people. He manipulates. A pastor cannot be a man always ready to quarrel and argue and impose himself and get his ways and what he wants. Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 2, And the Lord's servant must not be what? Quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Proverbs 20 verse 3 says, it's an honor, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. But every fool will be what? Quarreling. 
A fool can quarrel and argue. It takes an horrible character to stay away from unnecessary arguments, right? One commentator, Alan Ross, he writes the following about Proverbs. He says, honorable people find ways to avoid strife. One cannot avoid strife entirely, but should avoid every unnecessary confrontation. I personally hate unnecessary drama. I try to not even listen to unnecessary drama. It's some people, they just love getting to unnecessary drama, creating division. Paul tells all of us to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the chains of peace. We must be eager to promote peace among one another, not quarrels and arguments. Some church members, they think that they have a calling from God to argue their opinions about everything. They think they're God's gift to the church to be always arguing, quarreling. That's the calling from Satan. To bring division to the church, always arguing, quarreling when you don't get what you want. And this past, I would say, three years, we saw the Lord was able to, with all the, the situation dealing with government and, and COVID, the Lord was able to, to lift up the veil and the curtains so we could see a lot of the leadership in the church. And we saw men who were completely weak, who fear men instead of fearing God. But you also saw some men who were so ready to argue and fight. They were more excited about telling their members to fight, to not wear masks. They were more excited about that than the gospel. Encouraging people to go and quarrel and argue. And you see so many Christians were bullies and violent with their words, especially social media and the internet. They're always, always leaving nasty comments, always ready to bark and get into social media theological fights. You don't want that. And you, and you don't want your pastors to be like that. Amen? Let's move to the next one. Not greedy. Not greedy. Dishonest gain. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunk, or violent, or greedy for gain. The NIV has not pursuing dishonest gain. The legacy standard has not found of dishonest gain. And it's interesting that the Cretans, people in Crete, they were well known for greedy, for being greedy. And that was a virtue. They thought that was cool to be greedy. I, I could say that similar in our culture, there is a tendency for cultivating greediness, right? In our American culture, still has some of always more and more never satisfied with what you have. And we see here the it doesn't matter what the culture, the society around us is teaching us and preaching to us. We need to see what God demands from us. And He commands us to put to death all desire to be greedy. There is no problem in making money and having a lot of money. The problem is when money becomes your master. You know, there are a lot of poor people who are greedy, not only rich people. The problem is when you no longer have control over money, but money has the control over you. And think about the mark of a false teacher. One of the marks of a false teacher is what? Being greedy, right? One of the marks of a false teacher is being greedy, dishonest gain. Look at the heart of the prosperity theology and how it promotes dishonest gain in order to satisfy greedy leaders and greedy people. People love the prosperity theology why? Because they're greedy. They want more. 
So you start promising them that you're going to have more, they buy the gospel. Men like Kenneth Copeland, Joe Osteen, Benny Hinn, and so many. The list is gigantic. Don't have time to go through here. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 2, Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, gain but eagerly. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul speaks a lot about the dangers of loving money. Paul says that godliness plus contentment is what? Great gain. Great gain. Do you want to be rich? Godliness plus contentment. Reichen says, he quotes Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. And then he says the antidote for greed is contentment. People who are greedy are always thinking about what they lack. Whereas those who are content lack nothing. In a way, since they have everything they need, they are as wealthy as if they possess the entire world. Right? Content people. People who are content as if they have everything. Greedy people are always in need. Always need something else. So think about the opposite. The opposite of being greedy. The counterpart is that the overseer, the pastor, the elder, is not only supposed to be free from greed and dishonest gain, but he must show the opposite. A life, a character that's free from the love of money, that is demonstrated through what? Generosity. Generosity, generous. How he manages his money. A man who gives generously, sacrificially. A man who is careful in how he spends his money. That's the mark that the Lord wants of those who are going to be leading. To help people, to teach his people. To say, follow me like I follow Christ. And some Christians, they think it's their duty to, to help their pastors and elders to be humble in this area by keeping them poor and broke, right? <laughs> I have heard church members saying, my pastor should never make more than I do. And certainly the Bible speaks often about the danger of loving money, the danger of riches. The Bible also speaks about generosity, sacrificial giving. And that's important because the elders are the one overseeing the finances. Sometimes we come from churches where we think that the deacons are the one in charge of the finances. The pastors are the ones in charge of the finances. They are the ones who have, they have oversight. They are the ones who are leading the church, governing the church. Helping the church making decisions about major financial issues. And by the lifestyle of the leadership, you will either trust or not trust in how they manage the money. Amen? And as you look at a, a church's budget, how a church spends their money, the, the money that the Lord has provided for them, is very very revealing. Just like your own bank account. As you look at your bank account, you can see where your heart is, where the money is going. The church also, as you look at the, the church bank account, where the money is going, is showing what the church prioritizes. Right? So... Those are the vices, the, the blemishes that must be avoided, that cannot be present in the life of those who are going to be leading God's flock. Some of, right? There are other things that we could, but that Titus has here for us. But moving to verse 8, there is a change here. Right? How, how, does, your, how does your verse 8 begin? 
How? Yes, it's a contrast. So there is a contrast of what they are not supposed to be now to what they are supposed to be. To the things that they must put to death, to the things that they must cultivate. One scholar says it's not enough that the leaders, the pastors, elders, not be cads and scoundrels. The grace of the God they confess should have permeated their lives to the point that it produces a vast number of serviceable habits and strengths inherent to the mature godliness that they possess. Like we are singing here, no list of sins I have not done, right? No humble dress. It's tempting for us just to look, oh, I'm not a drunker. I'm not greedy. I'm not violent, so I'm good. No. People need to know you by the virtues that you have. Amen? You cannot be a secret agent where suddenly people, you say, oh, I can't, I'll, I'll be in church. Whoa, wait, 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 Abby, you're a Christian. I had no idea that you're a Christian. We cannot be like that. We have virtues that when you say, I knew, I knew they were a Christian. There was something new that was different. And the first one that he talks about is being hospitable. Hospitable. The home is a reflection of the heart. If his heart is open to love people, he will open his home. And especially in the early century, uh, the, the first century, the early age of the church, you think about it, and especially in places where the church is being persecuted. It's vital. Think about the early church. They did not have church buildings to meet. Where were they meeting at? Homes. So you need Christians to be what? Hospitable. Philip Toner, he says, it would have been virtually impossible for the church to survive pressures from outside, for its members to worship regularly together, or for the gospel to spread without the generosity of householders who open their homes to fellow Christians and travelers. Think about Paul traveling, Peter traveling. There was not a plane, a straight airplane from one place to the other. They would be traveling, they need to stay at places. Not like there were hotels everywhere. So you'd stay at the home of Christians who would take care of you. Look at 1 Peter 4.9. 1 Peter 4.9. To all Christians, all Christians, show hospitality to one another. That's a command. Every Christian is called to show hospitality. And look, he says, without grumbling. Why? The Lord knows that it's very tempting for us to do what? Yeah. Oh, I can't believe they're coming today. Oh. Do without grumbling. It's fascinating. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. First Timothy 5, 10. Paul tells that only the widows, only the widows in the church who practice church hospitality, those who did hospitality are supposed to be helped by the church. <gasps> Suddenly we think that all the widows must be helped. There are even qualifications for the widows that must be helped. Because then they must be taken from the church when they could be working, serving. And wait a second, how have you been serving the church? All Christians are called, commanded to be hospitable. But the pastors, the elders, the overseers, they're going to embody, exemplify that, be an example to the church. They will display our Savior who opens His home for strangers to come. To be hospital is to be a man who brings people into his home to shepherd and care for them when it's uncomfortable. Right? It's easy to be hospitable when you're feeling energized, when you like the person that's coming, when the time is appropriate for you and your family. It's a whole different game when you bring people into your home to care for them. When you are exhausted, you had other plans, and the people coming over are the people that you don't prefer hanging out with. But it's in your home, it's there that people will see how you treat your wife, how you treat your children. They will see the orderly aspect of your home. 
It's the place that pastors can truly shepherd people, shepherd their hearts. How often we have, have even family devotions with people at home it's where they learn. Okay, how do you do family devotions? Here, watch us. Have dinner with us. Watch us. I heard a pastor saying once, enjoy the elders' hospitality, but do not abuse it. <laughs> and for all of us, enjoy people's hospitality, but do not be a burden. Amen? Think about how those aspiring, those who are in leadership, they must reflect the heart of the Lord and not, not only at their home, but in the church too. This man must be man who welcomes those who are visiting God's home, God's house. You want elders, pastors in your church that people come and, and they f- feel comfortable in one way. They feel welcome. Amen? You don't want awkward people who are even like, oof. This is my elder. I, I hope he doesn't go greet that person because it's kind of embarrassing. You don't want that. You want a man in the church who will greet them and you know that they're loving, that they're, they, they, they will be a great example of Christ. But there is this aspect of hospitality also. Quote Merkel again, he says, Being hospitable means making time not only for one's family, but also for others. The theme of hospitality is an important biblical virtue. You can go back to the Old Testament, Genesis. You have people being hospitable. Abraham is praised for being hospitable. If an elder is to get to know people and invest in their lives, he must take the time to build relationships with them. If he is to effectively shepherd the flock of God, he must be open He must be open so that he can minister to the flock more than just on Sunday mornings. Think about all the premarital, postmarital, marital counseling that we do. It's all in the home. It's all in the home. How often? Family crisis. It's in the home. People come into your home. And I hope as they come to your home, they feel the the shalom, the grace of God in that place. And I think about the celebrity pastor culture that we live nowadays, where you ask people, who who, who is your pastor? Oh, John MacArthur is my pastor. In the radio, in the TV. Vody is my pastor. I love this man, but this whole mentality, and suddenly that makes no sense. You truly think that MacArthur is opening his home for you to go there as your pastor? You truly think that if you have a need right now, uh, Steve Lawson is going to open his home for you to go in so he can shepherd you? It's the local, the local pastor. People have this idea, if I just move to California, go to MacArthur's church, hey, you think you're going to get there, MacArthur, and all the elders are going to be just welcoming to their home. They're going to get to know all MacArthur's grandchildren, have lunch with them, yeah, right? Man, reality check. It's in the local church. That's why the pastors must be hospitable. Men that you can just approach, and when you need, you can meet with them, talk to them. And hospitality also refers to the approach, approachability of the Christian. Some Christians refuse to go to other people's home to have a meal because they're too good. No, you go. If somebody invites you, you go. And it's funny that, that Paul says that men are, are commanded to be hospitable, not the, the, the wives of the elders. Okay, those aspiring to be an overseer, make sure that your wives are hospitable. No, the men. Because I know many men who put all the burden on the wives. Like, the men are supposed. Paul is talking to the elders. Or those aspiring to be elders. You men. Leader, you help your wives. Amen? Can I hear the lady saying amen here? Oh, my. <laughs> and remember that Christians are commanded by the Lord to be hospitable. 
Sadly, some Christians are embarrassed of inviting others. Just kidding. It is warm. <laughs> some Christians are embarrassed of inviting others over, either because they think that their home is too small or too disorganized. Right? Those are the excuses I hear and you hear too. It does not matter the size of the home. Right? God simply commands you to open the doors. That's it. It doesn't matter the size of the home. And honestly, if it needs to be cleaned up and organized, organize and clean up. That's a wonderful way for you to do that. Right? I remember this elderly couple. They would not have anybody over. And the time is flying. I need to move here. But there was this elderly couple. They would not have anybody over. Nobody knew where they lived. And I remember once they had the opportunity to go there. and Hoarders. The house packed with boxes all over. No wonder nobody would go there. It's like, honestly, the Lord calls you to have people over, not boxes of junk, newspaper, magazines. They will never use it. The Lord commands you to have people, Christians over. The same when you have a tiger. Oh, I have a tiger. I have a Komodo dragon. God does not call you to have a Komodo dragon at home. He calls you to have people. Amen? The word also, uh, the word literally means a lover of strangers. You have philos plus, then you have the word xenos. From we have xeno, xenophobic. And there is this aspect that no Christian, and especially pastors, should be racist. Just we America, we Americans. No, because Christ has died for his people. And he loves people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that is reflected in how he welcomes all the different people in the church. Amen? Let's move. We need to move. Next one. Lover of good. Lover of good. The pastor must be hospitable and a lover of good. Philos agathos. Very similar to the other word, but he loves what is good, what is noble. He's a friend of that which is good and noble. The opposite is the one who loves what is evil. And that's our society, our culture. And good here is not what I define as good, but as God defines as good. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord has told you, O man, what is good. God defines what is good. And then we must love what God defines as good. The man who loves what is good, he's a friend of good. And who is good in the Bible? God. The Lord is good. So he's a lover of God, he's a friend of God. He loves God with all his soul. It's all his mind. It's not a burden for him to love good. He delights in not watching certain movies, avoiding certain people and places because they're not good. Amen? It's not a heavy burden. Oh, I can't believe I cannot watch that. It's like, no, he delights because he loves what is good. I love good, therefore, I delight in not placing these things before my eyes or going to this place or spending time with this so-and-so because it's not good. It also includes good books, good music, good causes, good things. He loves what is good. He leads people in doing what is good. He fights for what is good. And that, this letter here has a lot of good, talking about good works, good works. And the pastors, the elders, are supposed to be an example of that. And the last one, the last one here for today, for today, self-controlled, self-controlled. Uh, depending the version you have, you might say prudent or sensible. The word comes from sophron, sophron, it comes from sophia. Uh, wisdom is related to a person who is wise, he knows how to control himself. Paul used this word, the same Greek word you can look in chapter 2. Look with me to chapter 2.
Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, what? Self-controlled. Uh, talk about the women in verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. In verse 5, what? To be self-controlled. So the older women, the older men are to be self-controlled. The older women are supposed to be self-controlled. To teach what? The younger women to be what? Self-controlled. Look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Verse 12. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live what? Self-controlled. That's what the gospel does. The gospel produces in us this ability to be self-controlled. You have control over the self. It's the self-mastery of the body by the self-mastery of the mind. Because the mind has been mastered by the gospel. As the gospel masters your mind and your heart, you are able now to master what? Your appetites. Your body. Your desires. The gospel makes us sensible people. We are sensible now. We come to our senses. We live in a society that makes no sense. A nonsense society. And the gospel comes and brings sanity to our lives. We can have control. In Mark chapter 5, we have that beautiful story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. As you have the demoniac. And he's under the control of demons and Satan. He has no self-control. And as the gospel in Jesus Christ comes and conquers that man, we are told towards the end of the story that the man now who was naked, killing himself, just like a, a lunatic, now he's seated, clothed, and he says what? We self-control, the same word. That's what the gospel does to us. So brothers and sisters, as we think about all these things here that Paul is telling us to put to death and to cultivate, we might say, how can I do that? How can I be like that? Look what Peter tells us. He's referring to God. God's divine power has granted to us what? Some things. All things that pertain to life and godliness. He has provided all that we need to live what He's calling us to live. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellency. Precious brothers and sisters, we have all that we need to be the people that God calls us to be. We lack nothing. We lack nothing. These vices here, these things that the Lord is calling us to put to death, this lifestyle that he's requiring for, uh, for, from us is, is, not, is not an unjust master that is demanding something that we cannot do. No, the gospel empowers us. Look at that, the knowledge, through the knowledge of him. The knowledge here is not just mental knowledge, it's loving. Loving him, treasuring him, adoring him, fellowshipping with him. That's what God used to empower us to live this life. Spurgeon once quoting someone else, he said, Sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So what the gospel commands us, the gospel empowers and enables us. Amen? So there is hope. As you read these things here, God is giving you hope. Because He gives us the power to be what He calls us to be in Christ Jesus. We lack nothing. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And as we come to the Lord's table, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we come to the table of this benevolent, merciful, generous Lord and God, He gives us all that we need. We are coming to the table of a God who is generous, who gives all that we need to live godly lives. And that's what we are thanking Him during the Lord's Supper. That's what we are proclaiming that through the death of Christ, through the life of Christ, through the resurrection of Christ, we have all that we need. We need nothing because we have God on our side. 
Amen? Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. Lord, we, we come before you with humble hearts, Lord. We, we cast ourselves on the dust. Because apart from Christ Jesus, our King and Savior, that's where we need to be. You are so majestic, majestic in holiness, majestic in love, majestic in power. And we are so puny, so small. And we stand amazed that you'd love us. Love us enough to change us, save us, adopt us. And invite us to come to your table, Lord. Please help us as we prepare our hearts to partake of this wonderful ordinance that you have commanded us. Help us to build one another. Help us to look at one another's face and see the grace of God in our lives. Oh, what we were before the grace of Christ and what we are now, Lord, and what we will be. We stand in awe. So please prepare our hearts. Feed us. Feed us, O oh Lord. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.